123, this is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. This morning's episode is going to be the General Conference Digest for the Sunday morning session of General Conference, which has just concluded. It is April 2nd, 2023. I'm also going to include a few comments about last night's session of General Conference, which I did not get to at the time. First, the Saturday evening session from last night. I think the most interesting thing about the Saturday evening session was how short it was. There were only four speakers. They were all 70s. There was no apostle who was speaking. There were four 70s who spoke. They spoke about 10 minutes each. There was singing. And then to everyone's surprise, the meeting was done and over with by 10 minutes after the hour. Yes, the two-hour, typically, traditionally, the two-hour session of Saturday evening general conference lasted only 70 minutes last night. And I am being charitable with that. I mean, the closing prayer was done. The closing song was sung. 70 minutes, boom, people are headed out of the building. And only four lower-level 70s spoke. Now, the Saturday evening session has a storied history, as everybody knows. When I joined the church 45 years ago, every Saturday evening session, both in the April and October General Conference, was the priesthood session. It was reserved for the men and the boys 12 years of age and older. But then, a few years back, they started to incorporate the women's session, and actually even calling it a session was its own controversy. The women's meeting, which had typically been the weekend before, now got incorporated into the actual fiber of General Conference weekend, and they got the alternating Saturday night. I believe it was the priesthood in April and the women's meeting on Saturday night in October. And that occurred for a number of years. What I seem to recall happening, and don't hold me to this, okay, but it happened in rather quick succession, was that first the decision was made that the women were no longer going to have their own separate meeting. That was going to be a general session. And then it became the women's session again. And this is all without it actually occurring. These are just decisions that are being announced. And then it goes back to being a general session. And now the men give up their priesthood meeting, their one priesthood meeting a year on Saturday evening. And that becomes a general session. So for the last few general conferences, and this is relatively recent, I believe. Every Saturday evening session was relegated to the status of just another general session. It's not men, it's not women, it's not priesthood, it's not anything except one more general session. In addition to the other four, the two on Saturday and the two on Sunday, now there's another, a fifth general session. And it appears with what happened last night that nobody cares about the evening session any more. When it was the men's session, it was two hours. When it was the women's session, it was two hours. But now that it's anybody's session, it's 70 minutes. And nobody of importance spoke. With what happened last night, I feel that the Saturday evening session has officially become the red-headed, freckle-faced, left-handed stepchild of General Conference. And we'll see what, if anything, happens as a result of this, if they go back to giving it to the priesthood or to the women, or if they're just going to keep limping along with this very, very lame Saturday evening session of General Conference. Now, I do want to say something about General Conference last night. Now, I do want to say this much about the General Conference last night. There were four speakers. As I said, they were all 70. The first one was Elder Bragg. 
He has spoken before. He does a good job talking. He gave an adequate talk. He talked about poise, by the way, and I give him good marks for coming up with something different to talk about, even though, of course, he roped it into everything else that you're supposed to do as a Mormon in order to have poise. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate example of somebody who had poise, and he gave some examples of when Jesus showed poise in the Gospels. He wasn't showing a lot of poise when he was destroying all the Nephites before showing up over there to show him the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. That wasn't really poise. In the New Testament, he wasn't full of poise when he curses the fig tree for not having any figs, even though he thought it would have figs because it put forth its leaves. He cursed it. It died. That's not exactly poise. But if we focus only on those situations where Jesus is reported to have had poise, yes, he is the perfect example of poise. Then we went on to another fellow, another 70 called Milton Gamargo. No, Milton Camargo. He's in the Sunday School Presidency. He is perhaps the most unhappy looking man I have ever seen give a talk in general conference. He was miserable throughout, and I actually did have to laugh out loud when he talked about how living the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us happy. (laughs) If there was ever a poster boy for how living the gospel of Jesus Christ and becoming a leader in the gospel of Jesus Christ in his own church does not make you happy, it's Milton Camargo. Look him up. You'll see what I mean. Then I want to talk about the fourth speaker in General Conference. I can't even remember his name. He came across to me as being very, very pleased with himself that he had risen to this level of speaking in General Conference, and he was holding forth in very dramatic tones about certain principles, which I can't even remember now. I just remember the way he presented them. He was a person who, more than maybe even Elder Bednar, seemed very, very pleased with himself to be up there and addressing things. And I'm glad he had a good time, and I hope that this is a highlight in his life that he can look back on and remember with fondness and share the story with his grandchildren. But now the third speaker in general conference last night was an elder in the 70 I'd never heard of before. At first I thought his name was Mattress, Elder Mattress, but I think it's an N, Elder Mattress. Never heard of him before. He gave a talk that I've got to tell you captivated me. He started speaking. First off, he's got a name that sounds like Mattress. I think that's funny. He has a bit of an interesting way of speaking, and I'm looking at that and thinking, hmm, that's a little bit odd. But it wasn't 60 seconds into his talk when all those thoughts left me, and I was captivated by what he was saying. I was absolutely drawn in and listening to every word. And as I listened to what he had to say, I thought, what is it about what this man is saying that is so captivating me because there wasn't anything remarkable about what he was saying. You could take what he said and you could Xerox it and it would be like every other conference talk. So it wasn't the content of what he was saying. It was something else. It was the way in which he was saying it. Now, in my TBM days, I might have identified this as the spirit. Okay. We all know that kind of feeling, but now I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, why is it that you captivate me? And I think that maybe, though I can't be sure by any means, the reason is because he really believes what it is that he's saying. His commitment, his belief came across in his message, and I think that's what captivated me. Now, honestly, I don't know, but that's all I can come up with. But of course, the conclusion then shocked me, because if the reason this 170 that I'd never heard of before is captivating me with his talk because he actually believes it, What am I to say about all the other hundreds and hundreds of general conference talks I've listened to that have not captivated me? 
Is that because the people who are giving those talks don't believe, at least not to the level of this elder naturist last night? I can't tell. All I'm saying is I'm holding it open as a possibility, and that is a possibility that fills me with concern and amazement that if only one out of a hundred general authorities really believes in the truth of the gospel the way that Elder Natris does, I think the church is on thin ice. And maybe that goes to answer a whole lot of other questions that many other people have. Once again, only speculation. I bring it up because it was such a singular experience for me, and I wanted to report it to you. Now we get to the Sunday morning session on April 2nd, 2023, which has just concluded. Elder Oaks once again conducting. By the way, last night, President Nelson did not speak again. He did not speak in the Saturday morning session. He did not speak in the Saturday afternoon session. He did not speak in the Saturday evening session, even though he was present, which was leading me and others to think, is he having health problems? I mentioned that in an earlier podcast. Well, All of that was put to rest today. Spoiler alert, Sunday morning session, President Nelson was the final speaker, and he does not appear to be in any kind of ill health. He was strong, he was with it, and he gave a very loud amen at the end to which the congregation returned a hearty amen. Elder Oaks, however, was conducting. And the first speaker was Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, known by President Iring as R. Todd Christofferson. We'll call him by his correct name, D. Todd Christofferson. Now, I've got to tell you, there were a number of talks in the Sunday morning session, which seemed to have two messages. There is a surface message and a number of talks that could be broadly applied in general situations, But if you know what's going on behind the scenes, a lot of times you can discern that there is an ulterior message in the same talk. And that ulterior message is designed to address a specific issue that is going on in the church. Now, the leaders who are giving these messages and these talks obviously know about what's going on behind the scenes, but it's up to the member. If they don't know what's going on behind the scenes, then they can just take it on the surface level of general applicability. But if they do know what's going on behind the scenes, then they can understand what that ulterior message is. And I think that a number of times, What we had today in general conference Sunday morning session were ulterior messages regarding the situation with the Securities and Exchange Commission fine that the church had to pay when it was discovered and reported and concluded in official court documents that the first presidency of the LDS church had conspired with the EPA to file fraudulent documents with the federal government in order to hide how much money they had in the United States stock market, and they had been engaged in this cover-up for a period of approximately 20 years. Now, when you know that, the Sunday morning session talks, many of them, if not most of them, seem to line up with a common message. In fact, so much so that I would call the Sunday morning session the SEC session of General Conference. Now, D. Todd Christofferson is going to get up and he's going to talk about how there needs to be peace in the church. There needs to be no contention. There needs to be no disputations among the members because Satan is the one who stirs up contention. He's the father of the disputations. And to the extent that you are going to be contending or critical of others in the church, then you are under Satan's power. 
Elder D. Todd Christofferson talks about this under the rubric of everyone being one. We all have to be one. We all have to be one and peaceful and live in accordance with each other by obeying the commandments that are given from God. If all people submit to Jesus, then all people will submit to the church, obviously, correct? And then they can all have peace, everyone among each other. As if it weren't already a possibility that D. Todd Christofferson was talking about being peaceful with each other and not criticizing and not having any disputations among each other and living as one in harmony, now Elder Christofferson tells a story about B.H. Roberts. And what this story is designed to do is to show the members of the church that even if you get screwed over by the first presidency and The church presidency makes a decision and does something that hurts you personally and professionally and deeply and egregiously, then you just need to forgive them because, dear brothers and sisters, the fault is with you, not with the first presidency. The story that is told is one of B.H. Roberts, who ran for Congress in 1899 after Utah had been made a state. Well, apparently B.H. Roberts made the cardinal sin of not asking for permission to run for public office from the first presidency. Elder B.H. Roberts was a member of the presidency of the 70 at the time, I believe, and he did not ask for permission because, well, he's running for office. What does that have to do with the church? Well, the church did not appreciate that. And in fact, according to the story, as told in conference this morning, Joseph F. Smith, in general conference, publicly chastised B.H. Roberts for failing to get permission from the first presidency before putting his name up as a candidate for Congress in the United States. And as a result of that, almost certainly as a result of that, B.H. Roberts lost the election. Well, B.H. Roberts was very upset about this for obvious reasons, and he withdrew from his activity in the church. He stopped participating as much as he should, and a couple of apostles, and I think it was uh, Elder Heber J. Grant and Elder Lyman, met with B.H. Roberts, and they talked with him, and as a result of this meeting, B.H. Roberts realized that it was his fault, that he was the one who was out of the way. There are tears shed, and he ends up recommitting to the church and going on to be a wonderful leader and faithful follower of Jesus Christ for the rest of his days. Now, of course, D. Todd Christofferson doesn't tell us about the secret meetings of 1922 or B.H. Roberts' studies in the Book of Mormon. No, he's not going to talk about that. For his purposes, We're just going to have B.H. Roberts be a faithful and outstanding leader and member of the church after this incident for the rest of his days. But what is the lesson that we are to learn from this? Other than that, it is a classic recipe for dictatorship, whether it's in a church or any other nation or organization. What we are to learn from this is that no matter how badly we may be treated by the first presidency, the fault is with us and we need to forgive. We need to get ourselves back in line with the church and I can't help but see this as a direct analogy to a lesson being meant for any members of the church who have an issue with the first presidency conspiring to defraud the federal government in order to keep secret the assets of the church. So what are we supposed to do about that? Well, obviously we're not supposed to talk about it because that would be criticizing and that would not lead to unity. That would not be the peace that Jesus assures us we need to have. That would be Satan having influence in our lives. So we don't talk about it. We simply 
get on board with whatever it is they do. Remember, yesterday we had the speaker talking about how all you have to do is know that the prophet is the prophet and anything he says is good to go, regardless of whether it's right or wrong. You follow it and you will be blessed. Well, it's a similar thing here with this story about B.H. Roberts in the first talk of the Sunday morning session by Elder D. Todd Christofferson. The next talk is given by the Relief Society president, Camille Johnson. It's pretty forgettable, if you'll forgive me for saying so. She basically talks about having a backpack on our back, and we have three kinds of rocks in there. And, of course, she makes sure that we understand they're metaphorical rocks, because otherwise we'd be looking around for real backpacks on real Mormons. So she says that these rocks are our sins and the things that we do that are wrong. There are also bad things that people do to us. And then there's things that have nothing to do with other people, but they're natural disasters or bad things that happen, diseases or things like that, that really don't have anything to do with what somebody else is doing to you. And they're not a result of your own decisions, but that's the third kind of rock. The bottom line is that Jesus will help us with the first kind of rock of our sins by forgiving us if we repent and do everything we're supposed to do according to the church leaders. But the surprising thing was that when it came to the other kinds of rocks where we would hope for divine intercession, Sister Johnson does not even give lip service to the idea of Jesus having the power to heal us of any problems or diseases or physical issues or mental issues that we may be suffering from. Instead, she goes straight to the idea that that is what other members are for, is to help out, lend a helping hand, lift up those hands that hang down. And once it comes to something other than your sins, there's no healing power. It's just up to other people to sort of help out and do the best they can and muddle through. The third speaker was Ulysses Suarez from the Twelve. And guess what Ulysses Suarez talks about? He talks about, in large measure, the same thing that D. Todd Christofferson talked about. Follow Jesus and have peace. It's all about charity. It's all about peace. It's all about how we need to stop contending and speaking evil of one another. Then he goes to charity to preach the same message. Well, it's charity, which is the true love of Jesus. How do we treat each other is the main thing he wants to get to. We need to treat each other kindly, gently, forgivingly, and not with criticism or judgment. Ulysses Suarez then talks generally about people sharing criticisms without knowing all the circumstances of the situation. In other words, judging people without knowing exactly what it is that's going on. And if we knew what was going on, then maybe we wouldn't be so judgmental of them. Well, it's not too hard to see that as a veiled lesson or a veiled message to people to quit judging the leaders of the church and specifically the first presidency for their conspiracy in the SEC imbroglio with the implication that if we understood more, then we wouldn't be so judgmental. Of course, they're not going to tell us what that rest of the story is so that we cannot be judgmental. We're just supposed to be not judgmental of them in ignorance because it's what Jesus would do. And yes, we all know that the Jesus of the New Testament was very forgiving toward the religious leaders of his day because he understood that if he knew everything that was going on with them, he wouldn't be so judgmental. He would simply be forgiving. He wouldn't have had those throwdowns with them in public. He wouldn't have been criticizing them publicly every chance he got. Oh, wait, never mind. And I'm continuing to go through my notes from Elder Suarez's talk. It's all the same thing. Satan stirs up hate. Satan rejoices when he sees people criticizing others. So everybody, quit making Satan happy and stop criticizing the first presidency. Damn it. 
He goes on, Satan plants the seeds of discord among us, and we who promote peace cannot fall for Satan's tricks. It is over and over and over. And the fact that he just continues with the same message throughout his entire talk makes me think he's really trying to make a point here. And I think the point is SEC. He also says, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. It's like Joseph Smith saying, if you do not accuse me, I will not accuse you. And the image came to my mind while Elder Suarez was talking that they're taking the teachings of Jesus and hiding their wrongful acts behind Jesus's skirts. It's like the first presidency is hiding behind Jesus's skirts. And they're saying, you all need to be like Jesus and not judge us or be critical of us when we have been caught red-handed violating the law. If you are critical of us for doing something wrong, then that's on you. That's your fault. Believe it or not, that's exactly the message that I'm getting from this talk. And this won't be the only talk on this theme in this session. We do get a brief respite from that from a 70 who is Japanese. His name is Kazuhiko Yamashita, and he gives us a break in the SEC apologetics follies by talking about patriarchal blessings. Didn't we hear about this yesterday? Yes, we did. And he even mentions the fact that we talked about it yesterday, but he's going to talk about it again. By the way, I sometimes make reference to things that come up in general conference that gives me the impression that the leaders of the church, at least the apostles, do know what the other people are going to be talking about because they reference what other people are going to talk about in ways that show they knew they were going to be talking about it before they prepared their talk. In this case, however, with the lower level 70, such as Elder Yamashita, or should I say Yamashita Choro, harking back to my Japanese days as a missionary, he really didn't seem to know that this other guy was going to be talking about patriarchal blessings. So he comes up, he says, hey, this other guy talked about patriarchal blessings. I hope it's okay if I talk about it again, because I think these are really important. So he goes on, he talks about patriarchal blessings, how everybody should get one, how the oldest person he's ever heard of who's got a patriarchal blessing was 93 and the youngest was 11. And he encourages everybody to go get their patriarchal blessings. Now, the important thing about his talk on patriarchal blessings is that he gives us these two important caveats. After saying that the patriarchal blessing is inspired and it is personal counsel from God to you, he has to give the two caveats, right? And the two caveats are, number one, if there's something important in your life that is not mentioned in your patriarchal blessing, it does not mean that that important event is not going to happen. So in other words, if it doesn't say you're going to get married, well, you can still get married. If it doesn't say you're going to serve in a certain calling, well, you can serve in a certain calling. Just because it doesn't say it doesn't mean it won't happen. And the second caveat to patriarchal blessings is the opposite. If your patriarchal blessing does say that something important is going to happen and it doesn't happen, well, that's okay too, because it can happen in the next life. So basically, a patriarchal blessing isn't necessarily going to tell you what will happen in your life. And it may tell you things that will happen in your life that aren't going to happen in your life. At which point, once you get through these two caveats, you're left scratching your head and saying, so what is the point of a patriarchal blessing again, Elder Yamashita? Then Elder Anderson gets up to give a talk. And he talks about the story of Alma the Younger and how he was all opposed to the church and he saw an angel and he got converted back to the Lord through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And once again, we have the absence of miracles in this talk. We have the strange spectacle of an apostle of Jesus Christ, Elder Anderson, saying that Jesus does not stop difficulties and trials from happening to us, but he makes those difficulties and trials easier to bear. Easier to bear. 
This is so different from the apostles of the New Testament. There is nothing miraculous about this. There's simply this sort of suggested panacea that believing in Jesus gives to us to make things not as bad as they would have been if we didn't believe in him. Well, it's impossible for us to know what it would have been like if we didn't believe in him. We can only live one lifetime. So we are left with the idea that if we believe in him, it could have been worse if we didn't believe in him. It's a totally unfalsifiable promise. You can't prove whether it's true or not, whether it happens or it doesn't happen. And of course, once again, unfalsifiable promises are the best kind of promises. I will say at a minimum that this kind of message sounds very different from Peter in the New Testament, who says to the crippled man by the gate, gold and silver have I none, but such as I have, I give unto thee freely in the name of Jesus, arise and walk. That's what apostles said in the New Testament. Today, what they say is, eh, it could have been worse. Today, what they say is, Not arise and walk, but hang in there because believing in Jesus will make it easier to bear. You can't walk again, but (laughs) you won't be able to walk, but believing in Jesus will make your not being able to walk easier to bear. Elder Anderson talks a great deal more about the name of Jesus and how it's emphasized in the church, especially through the new emphasis on the full name of the church. But then he finally gets to an interesting story, and this story is about two LDS members named Matt and Sarah Johnson. He actually gives their name. Now, these people are married. I think they're obviously sealed in the temple. They have four daughters. He talks about going to visit them in their house and seeing their four daughters and seeing a picture of Jesus up on the wall and a picture of the temple up on the wall. So there does appear to be some connection between Elder Anderson and Matt and Sarah Johnson and their family. So he talks about this family in relationship to temple attendance and how Sarah had made, I think, weekly appointments. It might have been monthly, but it was an awful lot for the family, including the four girls, to go to the temple every Saturday in order to do baptisms for the dead, for their ancestors. So this is very, very important every single Saturday. Now, all of a sudden, we get inserted into the story the fact that Sarah has been diagnosed with cancer. Yes, this wonderful, righteous woman who was so righteous, she takes her whole family to the temple every Saturday, gets smitten with cancer. There is nothing in the talk about the priesthood blessings that she received and how those priesthood blessings did not avail her. They did not cure her. She's going to end up dying of the cancer. But here's how the story goes, is that on the last Saturday of December, she, Sarah, who is dying with cancer, makes the appointment at the temple, not for Saturday, but for Thursday instead. Now, this reason is left up in the air. It's not answered as to why she should set it for Thursday instead of Saturday. I expect that in the real world, there actually was a reason for it since it was the last Saturday or the last Thursday in December. But at any rate, as this tragedy unfolds, she gets worse unexpectedly and goes to the hospital and dies of cancer. And guess when she dies? Early on that Thursday, the last Thursday in December, when she had changed their temple trip to unexplainedly. So the husband, Matt, gets home. All four kids get home from the hospital. Their mom has just died. Their wife has just passed away. They should be making funeral arrangements. But no, they realize that this is the day that later in the day she had made this appointment to go to the temple for the family. The reminder comes up on the computer. That's what reminds them. And they decide we're going to go to the temple and we're going to do those baptisms because that's what mom would want us to do. So they go to the temple, they do the baptisms, and they realize that their family can be together forever. That's the point of the story. 
Now, this story is not without questions. My question is, why doesn't she get healed? She has got four daughters. She's a wonderful, righteous person. There is no reason on earth that she should not be healed and her life prolonged by the power of the priesthood, but she's getting blessings unquestionably. She's getting multiple blessings from the priesthood, but none of them heal her. Where is the power of God being manifest in this story? But because there is no power of God being manifest in this story, what Mormons have to do is come up with a miracle anyway in order to explain that God is somehow somewhere in this story where it looks like God is nowhere around. It doesn't look like he's anywhere around when a woman as wonderful as this who receives all these priesthood blessings nevertheless dies of cancer. So we've got to squeeze God into it some way. And the way that God is squeezed into this story is this strange detail about her for some reason taking that visit on the last Saturday of December and changing it to the last Thursday of December and that coinciding with her death. Now, that doesn't make any sense. How does that make anything better? Well, it doesn't make anything better. But what it does is it serves to try and put God and some kind of inspiration into the story and shift our focus over to that part of the story while ignoring the fact that God allowed this woman to get cancer, receive priesthood blessings, but die anyway, leaving four daughters behind her. And I recall that I said yesterday about God hiding behind the trees in the forest of coincidence. I said that before I heard this talk, but this is a perfect example of that kind of talk. There's a little coincidence about this Thursday rescheduling, and we're supposed to say, oh, God is there, in spite of the fact that this woman dies and does not get healed. This is a perfect example of the saying that God hides behind the trees in the forest of coincidence. That's where we find God, or rather, that's where we don't find God, because he's really good at hiding behind those trees. And not only is God good at hiding behind those trees, we frequently create those trees ourselves for God to hide behind. Regardless, this is number six in this general conference, Death March. Kevin Duncan now gets up to speak about baptism for the dead and the other ordinances in the temple. I really think that this is not a significant talk. I'm going to spend zero time on that because he's just going to talk about the temple, how important it is, get to the temple, receive your ordinances, yada, yada. But now we get to President Nelson, and President Nelson gives the virtually identical talk to Ulysses Suarez and D. Todd Christofferson about contention. Do not have contention. Satan's the father of contention. Do not be critical of other people. He even says that those who foster contention are taking a page out of Satan's playbook. Once again, I think this is a message that is meant to be understood on two levels. The first level is talking about how we treat each other, which is the way he addresses it. But just underneath it seems to be a defense about the whole SEC fiasco. In fact, President Nelson actually is bold enough to say that we cannot serve two masters. We know what comes after that. It's God and mammon. This is the whole problem with what they did with the SEC. But he changes it. He doesn't say you cannot serve two masters, God or mammon. He says you cannot serve two masters, God or Satan. So now he's taking that passage, which has been used against them. And I think he's doing this wittingly. He's taking this passage that is used against him that actually condemns them from the New Testament. And now he's going to change it from God and mammon to God or Satan to say that if you choose Satan, then you will be critical of other members, including leadership, I believe. But if you choose God, then you will not be critical of other members, including leadership. 
I believe. That was a very clever move on his part, and I want to give him extra credit for that. Say only good about other people. Don't say anything bad about other people. That's another component of his talk. Don't judge others, even if they do something that seems suspicious, like returning home early from a mission. He mentions that as a possibility. Or if they should be caught red-handed defrauding the federal government. No, actually, he doesn't say that, but it's implied. They don't need your judgment, he says. Well, what he says about other members should apply equally to the leadership, correct? I think that's the implicit message. That's the ulterior issue. He says peacemaking is a choice and encourages us to choose reconciliation, to be reconciled with other members, not to criticize them, not to judge them, because we don't know the whole story. We have to be peacemakers. We need to not rock the boat. And I think we certainly need not to criticize leaders for committing felonies in order to keep members paying tithing. Oh my gosh. Then he takes the extraordinary step of putting up a picture of both of his counselors in the first presidency and extolling their virtues, calling them my two noble counselors and saying they are exemplary in how they discuss their differences. Well, I'm sure they're also exemplary in how they get together and discuss how to defraud the federal government. But nevertheless, that's neither here nor there. You're not to be critical. You need to be a peacemaker, just like we are, and how we talk about our differences with such great civility and respect. He even says, I love and honor these two great men. I think there's a reason President Nelson is vouching for his two counselors in this SEC session of General Conference. He talks about charity, the pure love of Christ. It's all the same thing that Elder Suarez said. It's all the same thing that Elder D. Todd Christofferson said. He says that when we take the sacrament, we covenant to remember Christ. And when we are in situations that are highly charged and full of contention, we need to remember Jesus. We need to cast Satan out of our relationships, just like he's cast out in the temple. He says there is no room in the gospel for prejudice, condemnation, or contention of any kind, which is a funny thing to say in, a, in the LDS church where apparently there's plenty of room for prejudice up until 1978 if you're black. And if you're a woman or gay or trans, well, there's still, there still appears to be a lot of room for prejudice in the Lord's church. But I think he's really focusing on the condemnation or the confrontation of any kind. There's no room in this church for that. So you guys just need to get yourself in order, mind your P's and Q's, and stop being critical of anybody else if you understand what I'm saying to you. Well, that was the talk by President Nelson. We were all thrilled that he is in good health, that he's going strong even as he approaches his 100th year on this planet. I will once again say that the Sunday morning session is, in my mind, without question, the response to the SEC fiasco. And the talks there were all lined up in order to make that clear to the audience. On one level, they seem general. On the second level, the SEC level, it's very clear to me what they're trying to say without coming out and saying it. Now, by the way, if they were true Christians, if they really practiced what they preach, they would come out, they would acknowledge it, and they would repent of it in front of their members. That's what I think a true apostle would do, and it's certainly what the same leaders of the church admonish their members to do. And what is good for the goose is good for the gander, even when the gander is claiming to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, that's the end of the Sunday morning session. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Radio Free Mormon.